Hi, this is Ben Lowell of Back to the Bible Canada. Today is the last message of Dr. Newfeld's series, The Gospel Alternative to the Cultures of Men. Today's message is entitled, Choosing Our Lifestyle with Wisdom. So let's turn in our Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 32 to 40, as we join Dr. Newfeld. The word lifestyle, it's an interesting one, wouldn't you agree? In the past, we used to speak about moral choices, and today, we merely speak about a style of life. In a way, it's a very much like the clothing we choose to wear, or whether we choose a tattoo on our bodies, or, or the kind of car we like to drive. In essence, whether we decide to live with someone, get married, or choose a money-centered life, or, or a life of sacrifice, all of this is merely described as a style similar to a fashion choice. Now, Paul has already mentioned that it was not his attempt to critique the wider culture, but to some degree, he did that in Romans 1. There he comments that the wrath of God is descending on the human race because it refuses to give thanks to God for all his benefits. And because the human race would not acknowledge God, God gave the human race over to depravity. In short, the human race is living a style that is not worshipful and reverent before God and tumbling into ever-increasing sin. But Romans 1 is an explanation of why the wrath of God is falling on the entire human race. Apart from that, Paul does not criticize, let's say, Roman politics, uh, nor does he make comments on the sensuality that plagued ancient Roman culture. But he does insist that the Christian community has been called to a culture, a lifestyle, a way of living that comports with God's standards of holiness. We're called upon to live out a life that reflects light in a world of darkness. We're the salt of the earth, the light of the world. We're the people of God in a world that has not heard or known of the kingdom of God that must one day reign. We are countercultural. You know, to the most part, 1 Corinthians 7 is about the one who is deciding whether or not he or she should marry. Since in the Christian lifestyle, only either remaining single and therefore celibate or heterosexual marriage is permitted. And since God blesses both choices, the individual contemplating how he or she wants to live, that is what style of life they want to pursue. In response, Paul has not given a command, but rather principles of wisdom that will guide the believer in making the choice. But in the midst of his wisdom principles, Paul did lay down one key command. It's found in verse 27. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free from a wife. The Greek verb is in the perfect tense. This implies, have you been bound so that you now continue to be bound to a wife? Already, Paul has taught that if an unbelieving spouse wants to leave a believer on account of his or her faith, the believer is to allow them to go. In that case, he says, the believer is not bound. We also noted that in the teachings of Jesus, Jesus did allow for divorce on the basis of sexual uncleanness, which one can take to mean unrepentant and consistent adultery. In such a case, one is also not bound. But if these cases do not apply and you continue to be bound, do not look for a means out of your marriage. Your husband and wife might be boring or too tall or too short, but you're bound to them by God's decree. Now, apart from that command, the rest of Paul's teaching rests on principles of wisdom. Old Testament professor Bruce Waltke describes wisdom this way. 
Wisdom, he said, is skill in living. You see, skills are the crying need of today. I can't begin to list all the skills we need. Computer skills, skills in diagnosing and treating disease, skills in inventing technology, skills in business and in free market economies, skills in the trade, skills like carpentry, electricians, plumbers, so forth, skills in architecture, skills in automotive design and manufacture, skills, skills, skills. I wonder if there has ever been a time in all of history that so many people are so widely and efficiently skilled. But almost no one is providing us with skills for living well. We're being told that we need more skills in this country, and it is all true. But who has skill in living well? That's why there are so many divorces, so many angry outbursts on the road, so many conflicts, so many people unprepared for death, so many people using drugs and alcohol and given to gambling. I mean, the list goes on and on. And as we've been working our way through 1 Corinthians 5 to 7, we've been seeing a passage about relationships. First of all, there was a section about sexual immorality. Then came a section about lawsuits among believers. Then came a section about understanding the theology of our own body and how our body is intended to be used in relationship to others and to God. And then in chapter 7 is a long section about marriage. Marriage is one of those great areas where we need skill in living, but not only in marriage, but also in remaining single. Now, Paul ends this section with final wisdom on marriage. I'm going to break it down into three units. The first is 1 Corinthians 6, 32 to 35. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. And so as believers, trying to choose their lifestyle with wisdom and skill, Paul begins by helping them understand that marriage might divide their interests. Please pay attention to verse 35, because that verse is the key to interpreting this paragraph. Paul tells us that his intent in this paragraph is twofold. First of all, he does not intend to give a command about marriage. He wants to lay no restraint on anyone. You have freedom to choose as you will in this matter. So choose freely, knowing that neither choice is sinful or less pleasing to the Lord. And second, and please notice this that the purpose of writing this paragraph is to secure your undivided loyalty to the Lord. So Paul is not writing this to say that married men are just anxious about their wives and not the Lord, but he is saying that it is a potential risk. In fact, married people must be aware of how easily this risk might divide their loyalties. When planning to get married, make sure that your marriage plans include the pitfalls that can come. You tell your spouse that they are second. Jesus is first, and furthermore, that your spouse should feel the same about you. See, some married couples no longer are active in their service to the king because they have divided loyalties, the very ones that Paul describes. It doesn't have to be that way, but for some, it is that way. 
let's understand something about marriage. First of all, it's given by God, and therefore it's a holy institution. Second, as I often tell couples, one can put a thousand to flight, and two can put ten thousand to flight. In other words, if you get a husband and a wife who view each other as soldiers in Christ, they can be great weapons in the hands of God. And thirdly, Paul talks about this in the book of Ephesians, that husbands are to love their wives as Christ loves the church, and that wives are to submit themselves to their husband as the church submits to Christ. In other words, marriage is the outworking of a divine role play. Your marriage is meant to show the whole world that Christ and his church, what they really look like. That's why, for instance, God doesn't want you marrying an unbeliever because you can't make that work. But that's what marriage is. It's not a lesser condition, but Paul wants you to see that the potential is there to make your marriage, which was intended for holiness, into something that's idolatrous. Anything you can't live without outside of Christ and his gospel is an idol. I mean, I once met a man whose wife had died, and he said, I have nothing to live for anymore. So therefore, he's telling me his spouse was an idol. Your spouse can become your idol. You can become marriage-focused and not Christ-focused. I hear married couples say that they have priorities. God is first, marriage is second, their ministry is third in proper context. Now, that would be fine, but I know of couples who never give themselves to the Lord's work, for it is the last of their priorities. So if you're contemplating marriage, please understand that marriage might tempt you to give up your dream to serve God. I've known people who have canceled a call for missions or a call to help the poor or a call to be involved in some service for their master simply because of their marriage. Consider that marriage has its own set of temptations. If you don't love Christ more than your spouse, you are not worthy of Christ. Paul says, I want to secure your undivided loyalty to Christ. Dr. Neufeld presents us with some penetrating and soul-reflecting words when he says, anything you can't live without, outside of Christ and his gospel, is an idol. Great words of wisdom that need to be considered in the life choices we make as God's people. More wisdom for skillful living when we come back. To suggest Back to the Bible Canada is blessed with faithful ministry friends that stand with us is an understatement. Daily we receive words of encouragement, incredible testimonies, often accompanied by gracious gifts of support. In June, a group of friends came together to offer a match pledge of $75,000 toward our fiscal year-end campaign. We're thrilled to celebrate the result of that campaign, but also share that this same group has provided an additional $75,000 match pledge for July to ensure we begin a new year of ministry strong. So again, for July, every gift you give is matched dollar for dollar up to $75,000. Whether you're a regular giver or considering giving for the first time, what a great opportunity to maximize your donation. Join us this month in support of our $75,000 match campaign by calling 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. We've been learning principles of wisdom when it comes to marriage. If you're tempted to let your spouse become an idol, you must not become married in the first place. Better to be single than an idolatrous spouse. 
Now the next piece of wisdom. Reflect upon the wisdom of what you have determined to do. Let's read verses 36 to 38. If anyone thinks he is not behaving properly toward his betrothed, if his passions are strong, and it has to be, let him do as he wishes. Let them marry. It is no sin. But whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity, but having his desire under control, and has determined this in his heart, to keep her as his betrothed, he will do well. So then he who marries his betrothed does well, and he who refrains from marriage will do even better. Now, before I make a comment on that passage, please understand that this passage is one of those difficult ones to translate. So we're well served to be sure of what Paul is saying. The NIV reads, if anyone is worried that he might not be acting honorably toward the virgin he is engaged to. So the idea seems to be that a couple is engaged and then their relationship is getting physical and out of hand in a way that's not acceptable between Christian people and they should get married as soon as possible. And that sounds like good counsel. In essence, the NIV and the ESV translate this in a very similar manner. But now listen to the way the New American Standard Bible translates this passage. It says, But if any man thinks he is acting unbecomingly toward his virgin daughter, if she should be of full age, and if it must be so, let him do what he wishes, he does not sin, let her marry. But he who stands firm in his heart, being under no constraint, but has authority over his own will, and has decided this in his own heart, to keep his own virgin daughter, he will do well. So then both he who gives his own virgin daughter in marriage does well, and he who does not give her in marriage will do better. See, in other words, the ESV translates this passage as saying that a man is engaged and is not getting married, but his passions are strong and he should marry. The NASB translates this passage as saying that a father has been holding his daughter back from getting married even though she is older and begins to feel different about that and then decides to let her get married. From the perspective of the NASB, this verse reflects a time and a culture where parents made this choice for their children, the father taking the lead. The passion, then, is not sexual passion, but a passion of whether his daughter should marry or not. But then he begins to question himself. Does he really have the best interests of his daughter in mind? And so he decides to acquiesce. He will let her marry, and in such a case, he does not sin. So clearly, two very different ways of translating this passage. So what's the best way to translate it? Well, I've spent a good bit of time at this wrestling with the original languages, and I've decided, for whatever it's worth, that you can really translate it either way. There's no way of telling the best way of translating this. But, and this is especially fascinating, the main idea remains the same. The main point is found in verse 37. If I might give you my reading of it, it would say this. Whoever has firmly established a matter in his heart and is not swayed by outside factors and has decided in his own mind. In other words, Paul is appealing for people not to waffle back and forth, never certain about to marry or not to marry. See, imagine the young man who says, I want to get married to Sally. Now, maybe I don't want to get married to Sally. I mean, I love her, but is she really the one or, or do I, I really want to tie myself down? 
See, instead of this, never being able to make a decision, Paul says, get a firm commitment in your heart. Make a firm commitment in your mind and then stick with it. Now, every once in a while, I'll meet a man who has been engaged for 10 years. Well, shame on you. You know, if you ask me, I even have a problem with a lengthy dating relationship. It's like someone wants the best of both worlds. They don't want to be tied down, but they certainly also don't want to lose that gal or that guy in their lives. And this long period of courtship starts to wear, and soon their relationship becomes physical, and they end up sinning sexually. To that, says Paul, get wisdom. Decide. Make a decision one way or the other. Fish or cut bait, marry her or break up. As James says, the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that's driven and tossed by the wind, a person who is unstable in all his ways. To that, I have a bit of counsel. Typically, and and this is not always the case, but typically, it will be the guy who vacillates and the gal who longs for her guy to make a commitment. Here now is my counsel to the gal who's going through this. If you've been dating a guy for a long period of time who will not commit, you give him an ultimatum, sister. Tell him you will no longer have it this way. You can give me a ring or we'll end the relationship. Give him a month to make up his mind. And don't you vacillate. In a month, you're gone and you have defriended him out of your Facebook account. See, because this I know for sure. Many of these relationships have degenerated into sin. So decide not to sin. Make a decision. Stand on that decision. Be willing to live with the consequences of your decision without constantly second-guessing yourself. So Paul has been giving us the wisdom, the skill in living that will help young people in their decisions to get married. Consider the advantages of remaining as you are. Utilize your freedom by considering the outcome of your choice. Remember that marriage is temporary. It's a this-world relationship. Understand that marriage might divide your interests. Reflect on what you've determined, and then finally, know that with marriage, unlike singleness, comes lifelong permanency. So let's read verses 39 to 40. A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives. And if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. Yet in my judgment, she is happier if she remains as she is, and I think that I too have the Spirit of God. That's just one of the differences between marriage and singleness. You can always change your mind on being single if the right person comes along, but if you're married, That's it, baby. You're in it for life, and chances are you're going to marry someone who's got great genes, and they're going to go on and hang on to this earth for a very long period of time. I know of a woman who married her husband, this is actually true, assuming that it would be a short marriage because Jesus was going to come back very soon now. And then she began to complain it was taking too long, and she was still stuck with Jack. And she said he was a disgusting man. Well, too bad, sister. The marriage altar has a phrase, till death separates us. And by the way, the sixth command makes it grimmer still. You shall not murder. So you're with him or you're with her. 
You're going to get old together, and you're going to grow wrinkles together, and you're gradually going to become senile together. If God is merciful, you might grow blind and not have to look at him or her. But let me end by speaking to young people. The decision to marry really is a wonderful decision, but it can be tragic. The decision to remain single may be a wonderful decision, but it can also be tragic. It all depends not on the decision to marry or not to marry, but on your skill in living. The real question comes back to verse 37. You need to be firm in your resolve. Make a decision and then live with that decision regardless of the consequences. If you have your desire under control, under the control of your will, which is guided by wisdom, the wisdom of God, you can and will live well. In essence, we really have in these last verses a summing up of Christian culture. Now, while there is so much more to living the Christian life than the issues of money, sex, and marriage that are discussed in these three chapters, and yet these issues really do reflect the most basic outworkings of Christian culture. How we deal with our money and how we handle our sexuality really does set the stage for how we live the rest of our lives. Now, of course, Christian culture does deal with other things. I mean, our response to the poor, the value of human life, how we understand work, fairness and justice. I mean, all of these things are important. But the things discussed here form the basis upon which we can build a life. To sum it all up, God has called us as believers to create communities that actually provide an alternative to a culture in which brokenness and selfishness and self-centeredness is rampant. The way in which we live testifies to our world that God in his infinite mercy has opened up a way of living that is good, filled with goodness, and that breathes out life and love in its selfish and evil world. John, if I can go back to the beginning of your message, we were talking about the wider culture. And I thought it was interesting what you said, that really, that the greatest sin that any of us can commit is not being thankful to God. Yeah, it has to do with how we critique our culture. And uh, so many of us critique the individual sins that, that we really dislike. But the reality is we live in a culture that does not give thanks to God for all things, and nothing is more evil and wicked than failure to give thanks to God. Now, once we get that, and then we begin to see, well, we, we haven't been you know, isolating ourselves from people who don't do that, but we've been showing love to them. Well, perhaps we can get a different view of things. Thanks so much for your teaching today, John. Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. Back to the Bible Canada, Dr. John Newfeld, Phil Calloway, and the Back to the Bible ministry team has just returned from our second Israel experience, and what a blessing. Each year we've left knowing that some were left behind because of a designed limited capacity and our desire to ensure a uniqueness of intimacy with each event. Well, the uniqueness of intimacy is a non-negotiable. But we also want to make sure as many as possible have opportunity to participate in Back to the Bible Canada's Israel Experience. So even though we've just returned, we're announcing the Israel Experience 2019. 
Join us April 28th through May 6th, 2019, and consider including the Jordan extension from May 6th through May 11th. Last year, we were booked to capacity in only the first few months, so don't be disappointed. Call today for all the 2019 Israel Experience information you'll need at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.